Welcome to the Idea Pod, a podcast dedicated to exploring and interrogating professional biomedical and applied ethics here at the University of Leeds. For any new listeners, I am Gabby, a postgraduate researcher at the Idea Center and your host today. Accompanying me in this episode is Andrew Stanners, hospital doctor and healthcare ethics teacher at the Idea Center. He is also a trustee for the UK Clinical Ethics Network. Andrew, welcome. Thank you, Gabby. Today will be a continuation of our previous episode on the do- doctrine of double effect and trolley problems related to the pandemic. However, in this episode, we will get into possible solutions. One has to do with needs and the other with the Rawlsian concept of reflective equilibrium. To start, let us review some of the initial healthcare context in the pandemic related to people competing for scarce resources, which initiated many trolley problems and allergies. So, back in March, the early ethical discussion was focused on competing for ICU beds, So, Andrew, what were the main arguments and conflicts back then? It was felt at the time that intensive care units may be overwhelmed by people with COVID-19. So there were arguments about scoring systems aimed at helping staff to decide who should be prioritised to get scarce ICU beds and ventilators. It seemed uh, generally agreed that people with a lower chance of successful outcome on intensive care or with a longer potential stay on intensive care should not have priority for treatment and that resources should be focused on people with a higher uh, chance of recovering. However, some drafts of these scoring systems seemed misguided since they used chronological rather than biological age as a marker for less successful outcome. Just to be clear, chronological age is the length of time you've been alive for and biological age is a measure of how well you've aged. The former doesn't necessarily correlate with the latter and biological age perhaps reflected in frailty, is the better predictor of successful treatment. Disability groups also complained that a frailty score designed for use in older people was incorrectly going to be applied to generally younger people with fundamentally different underlying conditions. However, these arguments became less relevant as additional ICU resources were made available and the debate broadened away from difficult ICU decisions. Right, so we started with this idea of, you know, we don't have enough resources, and then we moved, and the issue evolved, as it was shown in the previous episode. Um, People competing for scarce of resources are now, on the one hand, those suffering from COVID-19, and on the other hand, those with a very wide range of other conditions, such as, you know, dementia, cerebrovascular disease, cancer, degenerative joint conditions, and a lot of other things, right? Yeah. Yes, Gabby. Uh, And it's worth pointing out that these conditions vary enormously on each side and the harms they may cause, ranging from death um, in the most severe cases to discomfort in the least severe ones. So healthcare providers now have to choose between various of these groups of people in order to decide who should be treated. 
Yeah, and 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 that precisely was the focus on on one of our examples is in the last episode about who should be treated. The the Connie Shaw's COVID trolley problem, um, where she exposed the complexity of these real cases. So this complexity was a combination of uncertainty provided by the constantly changing numbers on the two sides of the rails, uh, but also uncertainty provided by the unknown safety of delayed treatments. So the basic element in, in those cases was facing death on both both ends. But are, are there any further elements to consider in such situations? De- definitely, yes. Um, Shao describes a case of a person who is waiting for surgery to electively repair a hernia, but who um, tragically, in the course of waiting for surgery, fell gravely ill after her bowel became obstructed. And the implication of that case is that the person dies. However, fortunately, many people with hernias waiting for surgery don't develop bowel obstruction. So we're not merely considering numbers of deaths on the two sides, um, even if we knew the numbers. Another feature to consider is the severity of the harms on the two sides. So considering the severity of harms and balancing them out is, I would think, a recurrent issue in healthcare. So could you give us uh, an, an example for this point? Sure. Um, one example of balancing harms of different severity is to take dialysis, um, kidney dialysis, um, a life-saving treatment in the absence of a suitable organ for donation, and to weigh, weigh this against perhaps thousands of doses of a drug treatment for lowering cholesterol, um, drugs such as statins I'm thinking of. Um, People who aren't given statins to lower their their cholesterol aren't invariably going to be harmed by this. And um, joint replacement surgery perhaps is another example of a a treatment for a condition that that isn't life-threatening. And a utilitarian could argue that a sufficiently large number of people needing statins or joint replacements, perhaps, could have their claims aggregated so that they take precedence over a single person needing dialysis. But I suspect that most potential recipients of statins, if they were competing with somebody who needs dialysis, would um, object to their claims being aggregated. They wouldn't want to get in the way of someone who needs life-saving treatment. Um, Scallon has a view on this. On the, on the other hand, he, he argues that if the agents with the lesser harms do have a reasonable objection to being harmed, then their interests should be given serious consideration by the treatment provider. This is called Scallon's individualist restriction. Perhaps the person who's objecting is significantly impaired by arthritis and needs joint replacement. However, Scanlon's solution, his individualist restriction, can't resolve a dispute between agents on opposing sides who both feel that they have a legitimate claim to treatment. And that obviously complicates things a little bit because, uh, I mean, I cannot avoid wondering what could be a solution then, because we see this has been magnified by the pandemic and it is a recurring problem for healthcare ethics um, regardless. So I know that you suggest that one possible way of confronting this issue is to construe the competing sides in terms of needs. How would that work? Um, So 
after Wiggins and McGone, um, some needs are categorical in that they reflect what's essential for human survival. Um, an example of examples of this would include oxygen, food and, and water. Uh, and these needs can be contrasted with um, and would take priority over merely instrumental needs that are needed for some further purpose. Um, so an example of an instrumental need would be that I may need a hat in order to prevent being sunburned if I go out tomorrow. That's an, that's an instrumental need. Um, so the idea is that a, a need for a life-saving treatment would take priority over a need for a non-life-saving tr treatment, such as perhaps a joint replacement. The next move is to say that needs are um, parallel in relevant ways to harms. So we can think of categorical harms, um, for example, from lack of a life-saving treatment, you're harmed because you, you die. And those, uh, those harms, categorical harms, should take priority over or even trump non-categorical ones, such as non-urgent joint replacement surgery. According to this argument, then, the harm from being denied a life-saving treatment, such as dialysis, trumps the harm of being denied a non-life-saving treatment, such as joint replacement surgery. And this seems like a, a good choice in cases in which we don't have competing claims between people who both need life-sustaining treatment, um, but this wouldn't be satisfactory. Uh, in the other case. So it falls short on cases when we have life-sustaining treatment on both ends. Do we have any other alternatives? Well, yes, potentially yes. Um, another, um, another solution to this would be to seek a, a, a rules in reflective equilibrium. And this is the, the end point of a deliberative process in which we collectively think about and perhaps revise our beliefs about a disputed area in order to make them coherent. So we, so we reach a, a, an agreement of sorts. Um, there are some potential problems with this approach, though. John Arras objects that, um, and I'll, I'll quote from his abstract, the most plausible interpretation of reflective equilibrium is so comprehensive that it risks paralyzing our thinking, while the other objection claims that this same version of reflective equilibrium is insufficiently determinate in practical contexts and will thus fail to be sufficiently action guiding. And in the context of the pandemic, um, I think his claim of is plausible. How do we accommodate all the competing claims of treatment at the moment without being paralysed? And what specific actions are necessary, for example, when deciding whether to prioritise treatments for serious but non-imminently life-threatening conditions, um, for example, disabling rheumatoid arthritis, perhaps? So considering this last idea of uh, reflective equilibrium, this seems to be a theoretically good choice, but how hard is it to make it practical? And with this, I mean, at, at what level do you think these distinctions should be considered for decision making? And is it too late to apply them now? That's a good question, Gabby. And, and there are ways in which we try to do this, albeit in less pressurised circumstances. The NHS organises a citizens' council with the aim of providing a public ethical perspective on guidance that NICE produces. And quoting from their website, 
council members listen to different views from experts on a topic and undertake exercises which allow them to examine the issues in detail and thoroughly discuss their own views. So that's one potential way we can help to incorporate different beliefs in order to come to a coherent view, competing beliefs, that is. Um, in terms of fostering an overall ethical approach to policy, David Archard and Hugh Whittle, on behalf of the Nuffield Council on Bioethics, have made the point that the UK government has a moral and ethical advisory group. But I don't think it's clear if this group has been involved in any of the decision making in the pandemic. So overall, I'm not sure we know very much about high level strategic decision making, specifically about healthcare provision in the pandemic to help us with difficult choices, say, between provision of cancer treatments and care for COVID-19 patients. Right. Uh, I think ultimately one of the challenges we have in applied ethics is precisely this merge and actively engage with institutions, communities, and even the government to provide thorough solutions to ethical dilemmas. And I believe informing of this role of philosophical thinking is crucial to keep developing interdisciplinary contributions to, for example, don't find ourselves with a lack of strategic decision-making or application of it. And um, well, with that in mind, we're coming to the end of this episode. This has been a wonderful insight from you. So thank you, Andrew, for being here with us today. Thank you for inviting me, Gabby. The Idea Pod is produced by the Interdisciplinary Ethics Applied Centre at the University of Leeds. Find out more at ahc.leeds.ac.uk slash ethics. Music composed and conducted by Josh Armitage. Mm-hmm.